when they come into treatment, they're giving up their best friend. That is the one thing that brought them comfort. We're giving up the friend, so we're grieving that loss. When they do this exercise, it is an eye-opening experience for them to see exactly what it cost them. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I am glad you are with us this week for another fascinating conversation. Before we get into this episode, if you can please do me a favor, can you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review? It really does help. And also, send an episode to your friend. If you think they would enjoy the show, that would mean a lot to me. So this week, we have an episode that was recorded last year, but the audio file, for some reason, was corrupted. And thankfully, with technology, I was able to get the file and it is no longer corrupted. This episode is with Dr. Esther Maddox. She's been a certified financial planner since the late 1980s. Yes, that's right. Financial planner since the late 1980s. And she's been a certified addiction counselor since 2007. Dr. Maddox has taught personal finance management at the University of Georgia, Kansas State University, and she also sold financial products and worked as a fee-only financial planner. You can see she has a large breadth of background as she's done so many different aspects of financial planning. She's also worked as an addiction counselor in many different types of settings from hospital recovery centers, individual and group counselor, and intensive outpatient treatments in centers and residential treatment centers. Dr. Maddox holds a PhD from Purdue University and a certificate in addiction and prevention studies. She is a fascinating individual and she works in the intersection of money and addiction. During this conversation, we talk about the total cost, time, and toll of financial addictions. We discuss dissolving unhealthy financial behaviors, how to change the value of acceptance and communication, and how and why grieving is part of the change process when examining our financial behaviors and so much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Maddox. Esther, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, I'm very excited. And like I said, you came as a highly recommended from a previous guest. And as I started diving into your background, reading about your work, thankfully you, not thankfully, but I'm fortunate that you sent me some background information on the programs you run. And I think today's conversation is going to be quite informative for many different reasons. And when I was prepping for this, I thought that the intent of my podcast is examining the intersection between our minds, our money, and what matters most. 
And as I started reading your work, I really, really saw that you look at two things that I think are going to be beneficial for today's conversation. And one is all the hidden emotions behind money and anything else that causes emotions in our lives that we tend to avoid. So I'm looking forward to diving into all the hidden emotions that keep us stuck, so to speak. And the other one is change. I feel like you have a lot of experience with the clients that you work with on seeing change, help facilitating change. Your programs are really focused around change. And change is one of those things that is just, I mean, it's been researched on many different studies how difficult change is. And I like your approach to change. And whether it's money or some of the addictions that your clients have, we all tell ourselves these stories as we're going through change, as we don't want to change. And I think all of this is so applicable to our relationship with money. So I'm really looking forward to having you on the show today. Thank you. I'm excited. This is <laughs> well, I appreciate you inviting me. Yeah. So why don't you first tell us a little bit about yourself? In the background, we heard you have a, you were a CFP in the 80s. You had a fee-only financial planning practice. You then started working as an addiction counselor. Maybe give a bit of history on Esther and what you focus on today. Oh, I love that question because it's a great way to start a conversation for today. As a person who holds the certified financial planner designation, I was blessed to work at two wonderful universities. In my work over the years in teaching, a lot of my work involved teaching the general public about personal finance. I worked with the extension service. I worked at two land-grant universities, which means they do teaching, research, and service. And so I worked in the outreach division for both of them, as well as doing some teaching for the academic side. I love your explanation and the flyer that you sent me because we you talk about do do we want truly want wealth or financial independence? I, I think that what we want is financial prosperity. And we, as we accumulate financial prosperity as opposed to scarcity, that as we build assets, we own the asset. At one point in my life, I worked in the development office. And in the development office, we worked with people who wanted to make gifts to the university. So I became aware of what ownership in relation to finances meant. And ownership in relation to finances means that I truly own something when I've paid for it and it's mine. I own it. I own it outright. If I don't own it outright, I still have a loan that I'm paying somebody and it will become mine. If I'm making a gift, that gift doesn't leave my ownership and become a completed gift until it's transferred completely. Ownership is transferred completely. You say, why is she going down this rabbit hole? Well, here's why I'm going down that rabbit hole. With addiction, we're trying to fill the hole. We're trying to fill the hole, the emptiness, the despair with people, places, and things. The despair, the feeling that I'm in a hole and I can't get out, comes 
because we've displaced ownership of personal functioning externally. And we displace it externally basically in one of two ways. We become conditioned to order what we do in a way that we either, if we're in a disordered manner of functioning, we may either open interactions that happen around a transaction, open the interaction in a transaction or close it. We can operate from both sides. We have a dominant, a dominant one, but we, we also can flip roles. So it's, it's important to know our dominant role and how we, I will call it, get other people to do things for us or how we take over doing things for other people. And that is what sets up the whole because ownership leaves the source where it belongs. And when a pattern repeats, when ownership has been displaced and the pattern repeats over and over and over and over again, it becomes ingrained, it becomes learned, we attach to it and it becomes what we believe and it becomes the method that we automate that we then form that guides the formation of how we create what we do. We create what we do by what we allow and what we don't allow into our lives. A couple things that really stand out to me. One is a big focus on ownership. I, I really appreciate your focus on ownership in the context you just described. When we think about personal finances, you kind of started out saying when we own things without debt, we really own them. And a lot of time, the narrative or the story that goes along with personal finance and becoming wealthy is what do you own? How much do you own? How many investments do you own? How much property do you own? Something that I'm hearing come out of your what you're saying is even having, and I read this in your, your work too, is that there's another side of ownership, of ownership of that agency within ourselves that then forms that relationship that we have with our money. And at the start, when you said prosperity versus scarcity, that really reminded me of that as well is we can own hotels and expensive commercial bills. We can own all these sort of assets, but if we have no ownership over our thoughts and that relationship, then yeah, it puts us in that scarcity mindset. And at that point, we do question what is wealth. I really, really like that idea of ownership and reframing ownership to that self-agency and how much do we own of the thoughts that we have. I've also often talked about the iceberg model and you, you really, really reminded me of that when you talk about the patterns and the beliefs that we have. And when I look at our personal finance or, or any change is the top of that iceberg, the 10% that people see are the part that we see is only 10% of the iceberg and our financial decisions or our behaviors, how we show up is only 10% of the real story. Everything's underneath. And when you talked about displacing patterns, I do want to go to the question or ask you a bit more about displacing patterns, but that really made me think of all of those thoughts, feelings, and beliefs that we have below the ice or below the waterline on the iceberg. When those are displaced, they're, they've got to show up in some 
capacity. You talk about in the reading that I've done for you or on you is that displacement of ownership. Can you maybe explain some more of what you mean by displacement of ownership? And you did already, but maybe in a context of addiction or or money, anytime we're trying to have a change. I want to back up a little bit before I give you the example and say that if we grew up in an environment where there was a dominant personality that determined what we did, then that skill set does not get developed. That is what we transfer mm. in displacement of ownership. Can you repeat that again? I think that was really, really good. When we grow up in an environment, and, and let me say that we have different roles in, in the environment we grow up in. The firstborn will have a different role than the secondborn. So the firstborn is like, it might have the pattern. It's going to generalize this. There's a fabulous book that if you haven't read it, it, it will give you some insight into where, where I got this. The first class I took in addiction and prevention studies was about families, families and addiction. It's a wonderful book. It's called Another Chance by Sharon Wegscheider Cruz. And she talks about the roles in the family. The family organizes around the person that has the disorder. And the two, let's call them parental figures, they can be guardians, they might be the birth parents, they might not be. But the environment the children are born into, they will take on roles. If the, we'll call it person with the disorder and the person impacted by the disorder. Because when we're doing a diagnosis, for entry to treatment, we talk about disorder, not addiction. And we talk about whether it's there is no disorder, where it's low risk, mild or severe disorder, mild, moderate or severe disorder. So the label we use is disorder. The family becomes disordered when the person with the disorder does what they do the family member impacted by it, we'll call it the companion, life companion, organizes around the person with the disorder. And then because the person, the family, someone impacted by the life companion is so focused on the person with the disorder, then the family, the children adapt to what's happening there. So... We take on roles, we learn those roles, we take ownership in those roles to adapt to that environment instead of, because the focus is organized around the person with the disorder, their developmental dysfunctions based on the role we played. So when someone is in the role where they're dominated, they don't develop the ownership of their capacity to identify, define, and voice what they need. So they displace it externally when they're in relationships like a personal relationship, an em employment relationship. There are some, if you want to kind of generalize, the next birth order is probably given too much freedom. And then the third one is just kind of lost. And the fourth one 
uses humor. So we all have a mechanism we use to displace our ownership. Right. So in the work I do, I work to help people see how and where they displace their ownership. Now, getting back to the original question you asked, when we function in an interaction, there's a stimulus. There's a motive behind every action we take. Mm -hmm. That sets up some kind of want or need. If we're in health, we're identifying a need and taking actions to meet that need. If it's a want, we have a disturbance going on within us. We know we're disturbed. We think a certain action will go to the specific outcome we think will help us relieve the disturbance. It doesn't relieve it, so we need to medicate it. When at that point of displacement, so we've got stimulus, need, decision, action, and review. In a model where the person, let's say the person with the disorder, they get disturbed about something. They take a drink. They take a few drinks. They don't go to work, and then they can't pay bills they incurred. Well, they stop right there in the transaction. Stimulus, need, and then no decision, no action, no review. At that point, we have what's called crossover and cover. That's where displacement occurs. Ownership belongs with the person that opened the transaction. But if they have somebody that will close the transaction, ownership transfers at the point of crossover and cover, transfers, it's given up here, assumed here. Now, it's probably done outside conscious awareness. We do these things early on because we think we love somebody. And I don't mean to discount love because you, you have it right here fall in love with your finances. But what is love? I affectionately care for your well-being versus I use you to meet my needs. So if I grew up in an environment where I didn't learn how to define what I needed, then guess who I'm going to be drawn to? I'm going to be more than unconsciously willing to attach to that transfer. Right. And early on, that feels good. I'm in love. This makes me feel good. But as we go down the rabbit hole and the resentment builds, because guess what? I'm not getting what I needed because you defined it for me. The person that started it is happy because their bills are getting paid. But the person paying the bill, guess what? They can't define what they need, but they're feeling resentment. The conflict sets up and they're so ingrained in the repeated pattern they can't see how to get out of it. So in the work that I do, I'm trying to help people. And, and, and you know, the difference between I, what I do, I love that you talk about mind. There's mind, body, spirit. The body is the vessel that contains the mind, which directs the spirit. And what's happening with displacement of ownership, spirit, but the present, the power and energy leaves the original source and is transferred to the closer which sets up the resentment, which both try to medicate, but they try to medicate with it different ways. The closer tries to medicate with the opener. The opener medicates with substances. It can be gambling. It can be substances, alcohol. It can be drugs. And the work that I do, it's like when we go to a physician 
And if we have a bone that is severely displaced, they can take an x-ray and the physician can replace the bone to its original source. In the work I do, in the work that we're doing on the inside, the inside work, I'm the only one that can do it. As an outsider, I can give the framework. That's why I designed this framework. Help people see what needs rebalance. Where they're not being active in owning their part in, where they're being too active, where they're covering for someone and not taking care of themselves. Once they can see what they're doing, they can rebalance it. So think of this as the x-ray that shows the displacement of the bone. And what I do is help them see how to take ownership in the places where it hasn't yet been developed. For the closer, it means starting to take actions to complete the fulfillment of their own needs or cooperate with others to fill common needs. With the closer, we're working to help them begin to identify and define what they need and give it to themselves, what they need personally, and then cooperate for the common need rather than expecting it to be done by someone else. Again, a lot of really insightful information there. And when you said that I'm the only one who can change, uh, I know you meant I'm as in the person, not not you're the one who could change people. All I do is the outside party yeah. is give the framework to do the examination. Right. The reason what I was drawn to your framework is any disorder, so to speak, you can use this same framework. And I, I like how you talk about the roles that we fulfilled in, in, in our childhood, they certainly shape who we are, but also helping people with that concept to be aware that those roles still show up as functioning adults. And I like how you framed that, you know, what we didn't have, we're going to seek to have that in our, our relationships going forward. But there comes that crossover point that I think fundamentally, we all want to be seen, heard, and valued. And when we don't feel like that, your exact word was resentment. And we can see that show up in relationships with money all the time when someone wanted to be taken care of, but now that they lack that feeling of being seen, heard, and valued, and resentment can show up. But you made that point if they don't know how to get out of those patterns. I don't know if I missed a step here, but I really like that we can use this framework to think about even like with our money patterns of habits that might be dysfunctional in our own lives, but recognizing that stimulus, what is the need that needs to be fulfilled? Where's that decision coming from? And then what is the action and review? Do you want to touch on, I don't know if I missed one of them, but it was the stimulus, need, decision, action, and review. When we're trying to, I guess, bring consciousness to these unconscious behaviors or feelings, let's look at just disorders in general, how do you recommend people start working towards this? And I like how you talked about the x-ray and I read in your work, you call that non-physical displacement. So maybe if you could start with framing that, like starting with that x-ray bone broken, like maybe that's a good starting point to realize that there is such a thing as this x-ray that can see this non-physical displacement. And then maybe just walk through how one can start that process of trying to change? Because as we discussed earlier, change is very difficult, especially long-term change. I can do it. And it gets back to the example that I was going to give earlier. 
this is what I deal with all the time, and I want to do it in a respectful way. What I'm seeing in my mind is the specific examples, but it's very important that I respect anonymity and confidentiality. So I'm trying to set the framework in my mind so I respect, because I have real examples. Right, yeah. In my mind, setting the framework to give the example to be respectful of my clients, because I literally deal with the dissection, you know, taking it apart, helping them look at it. And, and let me tell you, miracles happen. When that light bulb goes off and they realize the crossover and cover and the change starts to happen, it's a thing of beauty to behold. What do you say to people who fundamentally believe that that would, is not possible, what you just said? who aren't at that crossover? The elevator goes up and down. We might not have gone as far down in the, in the elevator in the hole as we need to go to be able to see it. So here's the example. As I was talking, I, I have lots of examples, but I'm going to talk about the miracle, okay. a recent miracle. Okay, so this person, okay, in February a year ago, I started a series of 12 classes where I do them. Many of the people that I work with are mandated. They have to be there, but some are there on their own. This particular individual had to be there on his own. He was in a relationship. There is a child. He was a good earner. He provided income for the family, but the person he lived with managed the money. Now, this class that I'm telling you about right now is the financial management class I teach. Okay. And in the financial management class that I teach, I offer personal best practices and financial best practices. And so they're given two sets of best practices. I use the steps, traditions, and concepts of recovery to set the framework for the personal best practices, I cross Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous. I use Alcoholics Anonymous because it was the first recovery program, and I use Al-Anon because it's the companion program. It's Alcoholics is anon- Anonymous is for the person with the disorder. Al-Anon is for the family member of the person with the or significant other or. Uh, someone impacted. So you get both sides of the coin. And so we cross step one, tradition one, concept one, and, and we go down all 12. So each week that I'm doing that, I am also doing financial best practices. I've been in financial planning since 1973, okay? So I have, just as I've developed this framework for looking at behavior, I've also developed uh, financial best practices checklist that takes us through all the components of the financial plan and their affirmations, their I statements that I will set aside a thousand dollars. If I'm starting from zero, I will set aside a thousand dollars. I will save for my seasonal expenses. I have them calculate what their seasonal expenses are. I will save for emergencies. I will I will have enough set aside for emergencies that I We'll be able to meet them when they come. And then I will add to 
my, if I have a 401k or retirement plan at work, I will add to it on a regular basis. So they're getting those best practices on the financial side, but they're being balanced by their personal best. And so they're getting those in every session. And I happen to have the steps, traditions on the concepts on the, and the concepts on the wall. And we can start talking about step one. Maybe we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Well, our lives become unmanageable when we give up our power. We give up our power when we don't own it. Okay, so back to my example. There's a young man in my class. Everybody in that room is exposed to the same thing, but some people are ready and some are not. Mm-hmm. Some are ready for that elevator to go up to the next floor. They're really ready to elevate. And some aren't. So they're going to sleep through class. But that's not my job. I'm giving them the information. So here's the example. The couple is split. And in this class, for some reason, it clicked. And he decided that he would start saving money. And as this class started in February, we shut down and about a month in for COVID, we came back. He worked the whole time. We came back in June face-to-face with social distancing protocols. And I was stunned at how much money he had saved. He just started paying attention. Early in my model, one of the things I say is focus our attention, connect within, recognize, identify, define voice put into words. So we image what we want to do. We define, we put it into words. He decided that he wanted to start saving money. So the shift occurred at that point. At that point, he started taking the, he at the point of crossover and cover, instead of letting her be responsible for completing the actions, for meeting the financial needs, he started doing it. He started taking the action. Well, She wasn't in recovery. He is. One of the problems that you will find if you're working in recovery is if both partners aren't willing to do the work, if this one stays on the elevator floor where they were and the other one starts to elevate, that can set up problems, but a different set of problems. So as his elevator started going up and she stayed here, because we do, these people have individual consultations, not necessarily with me, but I can give information to the program director. We were noticing that he was either working all the time or he was spending all his time with the partner who he's separated from because he's living where I work until a certain point. And she was getting a resentment but he was not taking care of himself. He was not taking a vacation. He was, he was not having any downtime. He was either working all the time or going to take care of the family. And, and one day I said, are you going to ever take care of yourself? And he started thinking about it. He started thinking about it. And in the meantime, when I got back in June, when I got back in June, he told me how much money he had saved. He had gone from nothing, nothing. He came to believe that he could save. I put a little strategic plan up there. These are the best practices for building money asset. He followed him. Now, he didn't have the strength to manage the money himself, so he gave it to his employer. And his, empo- his employer has been phenomenal. And his blo- employer has been phenomenal. His fo- employer held the money, encouraged him, doled it out when it was requested. So here's the miracle of the program. A year later, we left through COVID. At, at the end of the 12 weeks, 
he told me he wanted to be my co-teacher. So he started being my co-teacher in the classes. Oh, when we started the second time, he sat right there with me, co-taught it with me. And then this third time, I've got another co-teacher and they co-teach it with me because, you know, this way I can develop their capacity even further. If they're teaching it, they have to learn it deeper. Mm -hmm. Two weeks ago, he had saved enough money and went on a weekend vacation with his buddies. He had only been on a vacation one time in his home. That's the miracle of rebalance and taking back ownership. Beautiful to see. It is. And I think it really speaks to your comment right before the story is when you said we, when we give up power or we give up power and we don't own it. And it seems like to him, he, he decided to take back his power and his, his ownership. And I think that goes to an overall arching belief that we talked to just a bit before we record is no matter how much information we get on whatever disorder, money or other, until we have that ownership, like you talked about, I think change is hard. Well, it's always hard, but it's like coming on the other side to experience what this gentleman experienced. It's hard. And yeah, I just go back to this story reminds me so much of your opening statement about ownership of, you know, of yourself is a key ingredient. The creation of my life. Yeah. I've been given what I need to create my life. It's how I form it that determines what I get. Mm -hmm. What I have today is how I, is a result, direct result of how I formed what I did. I saw in your, in your program, you get the individuals and perhaps this is part of the evolution of getting ownership, but I saw that you have your participants calculate how much their disorder has cost, what is the total consequences of their disorder and the amount of time. Can you just speak to, I guess, the intent of doing that? And for someone listening, say they're having some struggles around financial management or maybe it's shopping, spending or whatever, or, or maybe it's some different change. What is the value of, again, calculating the total cost of the disorder? Uh, I think it was cost, the total consequence, and time. The easiest example that I can think of that comes to mind, I have actual examples. When I do training for counselors, Mm -hmm. I take actual examples of how much people spend because that is the first exercise we do is for them to calculate what the cost is. For example, There was the cost of using, there's the cost of supplies, there's the cost of the consequences. If you have a DUI, it can get very expensive. If you're incarcerated, there can be a lot of classes, there can be a lot of fees, and and they can show up. One of the things uh, that happens in in the classes I'm teaching is they, they start progressing, they get ready to graduate from either their program where I'm teaching the classes, or from a court, and their officer says, today's the day you graduate, you've met all your requirements, and then their fees may follow them, and a surprise will come up and say, well, you're not done yet because you still have $2,700 in fees from another location, so they get surprises along the way. So now I want to switch. I want to talk about, let's say gambling. Just Mm -hmm. think about it. You're in Canada, right? I am, yeah. 
okay, in, in the United States, we have the lottery. Some people can go to the convenience store once every three or four months, spend $2, get a lottery ticket. Oh, I won. I didn't win. But then some people might view it as a source of income. And if they view it as a source of income, they might invest quite a bit. If you buy a book of lottery tickets, you might could spend $300. And if you buy a book of lottery tickets a week, that could cost you $300. So do the math, 300 times four. That becomes what competes with living expenses. That competes with investing money. I use that one just because it's the simplest one. Mm -hmm. I really don't do evaluations anymore, but sometimes I do just upon special requests. But the first question I ever ask is, what were your drugs of choice and how much did you spend? If you're spending 20 or $30 a day, do the math. If, if someone is on, on pills, you know, it could be costly. What happens is we have to, number one, when they come into treatment, they're giving up their best friend. That is the one thing that brought them comfort. It brings us comfort. We're giving up the friend so we're grieving that loss. When they do this exercise, it is an eye-opening experience for them to see exactly what it cost them. And then there's the grief of the loss, the financial, the opportunity cost I gave up because I made the choice to use. And so... If I don't have the money, if I'm not earning income because I've stopped to use, then I need to fund it. And so I might go do things where I compromise my values. I might take something that's not mine. I won't go any further than I could, but I'm, I'm going to respect the integrity of my clients. We begin to get away from what we might have valued. And that value leads the hole in our soul. What happens with the ingraining is that first time we had that experience with a substance and it made us feel good. It made us feel like we belonged. When we've never in our life felt like we belonged, we're going to chase it. But in that chasing, the drug loses its capacity to medicate. And so we have to have more and more and more to medicate. And the more and more we medicate to chase the high, we start doing things to chase the high. And that takes us down the elevator. If ownership was so displaced that we didn't have the skill set to know how to do differently, elevator can go to an awfully low floor. Yeah, so I, I certainly can see how that exercise, I would say, I don't know if the words help, but bring awareness to where the power is being displaced. And I could see at some points, though, some people might not be ready for that. And that exercise could, I mean, this is maybe you would have insight, could trigger something if they're not ready to come to terms with how, where their power has been displaced. But others, it's I could see it being very powerful to see that well, I'm giving the power away in all these other areas. So I, I certainly see that as a powerful exercise. And can I just tell you one yeah, more thing? Absolutely. Another story that I just love. Okay, so I've been doing this since 1970, not in the disorder arena, but yeah. finance. 
And so all my life, I always talk about the basic documents. We've got the cash flow statement and the net worth statement. Yeah. I have been teaching all these years, right? A year ago when I started teaching these classes where I teach them now, I had the most brilliant question asked I've ever had asked. And it is, how does self-worth relate to net worth? It just popped out. I said, well, that's a question everybody's going to have to answer for themselves. But I can tell you that as I develop the understanding of what I value, it informed what I do, and my net worth started growing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it goes back to your idea of ownership. you taking the ownership to understand what you value, and there's the result. Wow. So many insightful things, Esther, that you have talked to us today I want to respect our time because we have a couple minutes left. I have a final question for you. In all your years of facilitating change, whether it's in the financial services or as an addiction counselor, if you had to write a letter to your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren on what you believe to be true about facilitating proper change in our life, what would you say in that letter? I would say... Be true to yourself. Develop your capacity to be true to yourself. And this is how we become true to ourself. We open. We focus within. We connect. We recognize. We identify. We define. We voice. We place and direct our presence, power, and energy and connect it with others. So we either fill our individual needs or participate and filling the common need so that the needs of most or all involved are respected and met. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I, I really appreciate you taking an hour out of your busy day to come and chat with us. Your work is incredibly impactful. And the insights you've shared with us today are, again, incredibly impactful. And I think the service that you're offering to people is is fantastic. And I could hear it in the tone in we're on Zoom, in your mannerisms that you truly believe in what you're doing. So I, I just want to thank you for for the work you do and thank you for your time today. Blessings. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. And if there's anybody who wants to know more about you, some of the work you're doing, is there any places that you'd point them towards, whether that's uh, a website, a, your LinkedIn profile? I have a website. You can get to me through there. It's addictionfamilyfinance.com. It kind of went to the side in the past year when these classes I'm teaching are amped up. <laughs> I haven't given it attention lately. But you can reach me through there. I'll be glad to give you my email address. It's addictionfamilyfinance.com. Oh, well, yeah, just go to the website. You can get it. Okay, and I'll include that in the links. And it hasn't been given attention because so much attention. I'll tell you, the doors just keep it open for me to either do counselor trainings or do more classes at the place that I'm teaching and uh, do what I'm doing at this place for professional, impaired professionals. So, yeah. The website has kind of taken a back seat, but you can't reach me through it. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much for your time today and your insights. Really appreciate you spending this time with us. Thank you for asking. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. 
It's just the wind in the sea.